0: I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16, and we are finishing this narrative, this story of the man Samson. Uh, There are four chapters in the Bible that are about Samson, Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16, and we come to the concluding chapter this morning. As we do so, I want to share with you where we're going and then we'll go there and then I'll tell you where we've been, okay? So here's where we're going. The fool's gold, you know what fool's gold is, don't you? It's, it's something that looks like it's gold, but it's not. It's fake, it's cheap, it's worthless. The fool's gold of usefulness tricks us into managing our sin. The fool's gold of usefulness tricks us into managing our sin, only grace can save us. Only grace can save us. So, we're going to look at Judges 16. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll read the first three verses, uh, which will end on kind of an odd spot, so don't worry about that, and then we'll make our way through the text as we continue on getting through the chapter. Judges 16, verses one through three for now. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight and at midnight he arose and took the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron." Please have a seat. There is a fool's gold of usefulness in the middle of ugly sin we're introduced immediately to an ugly sin, Samson going to Gaza and meeting up with the prostitute. And, you know, you have to wonder, what is Samson doing? What is he doing down there in the heart of Philistine country? Up to this point, everything has been happening on the border between Israel and Philistia. Instead, now he's right in the heart of Philistine country. And By the way, you get the idea that Samson is kind of sneaking around doing this. Um, But here's an important principle. What we think that we're doing in secret is not necessarily a secret, is it? Even though we think it is, it's not. And so it's immediately found out that Samson's there in Gaza and they surround the place and they have a plot to kill him. They're going to set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept quiet all night saying, let's wait till the light of morning, then we'll go and kill him. Um, I, didn't, I didn't show, I didn't, I intended to show you a little bit of the gate structures of the late Bronze Period, but I didn't do that, so I'll have to sh- kind of describe it for you. But I am going to have a map, Okay. The gate structure is that there are these chambers, they're great big things, it's where people sit at the gate, and you would walk through the gate, through the chamber, uh, past these chambers, and so what, what's being described is these guys hiding in the chambers so that when in the morning Samson would go through the gate, they would be able to get him, okay? That's the, that's the idea here, um, but Samson gets up at midnight. And he takes a hold of the entire gate part on his way out. He lifts it up gates, post, and bar, puts it on his back, and he carries it 40 miles and up 3,000 feet of elevation. Here is your map. So everything that's taken place so far in the Samson story has happened in this red area, And Samson now is down here about 40 miles to the southwest at Gaza, one of the capital cities, in fact, the prime city of the Philistines. And what is he doing there? He's not fighting Philistines. What is he doing? He's joining with them in in fulfilling his passions. We're going to see the tragic end of living for one's passions today. And then, at midnight, he gathers up the gates of the city and he carries it over to this spot. Well, my, there we go. Right here at Hebron, which is 40 miles away, up 3,000 feet of elevation. I'll uh, I'll show you a couple of pictures here. One is from this town called Merasha, and the other is from this town of Lachish, looking this way toward Hebron, so you can see a little bit of what the terrain is like. So this is, this is looking from Maresha on up, and you can see the heights that are there. And then this is from Lachish, and you can see again how high it is off in the distance. And Samson is carrying these gates 40 miles up this terrain. It's, it's unbelievable. It's a miraculous escape. Why does Samson leave? Why does he leave when he leaves? Why does he take the gates of the city? It's an amazing feat of strength all the way up to Hebron. Here's the principle. Samson easily is buying into the fool's gold that usefulness is holiness. I'm being used by God. And since I am used by God, I guess I'm okay with God. Usefulness is not holiness. Just because God uses a person does not justify that person. You can be extremely talented, that is not holiness. You can be extremely useful, that is not holiness. You can be blessed by God materially and in any other way, that is not holiness. There is a fool's gold of usefulness in the middle of ugly sin. Samson's sin is ugly, but he thinks he's okay because he's embraced the fool's gold of usefulness. Let's look at verses 4 through 21. I'll read them for you. We will see that attempting to manage sin rather than killing it will always lead to disaster. Here we'll see a song in four different verses, okay? Four verses to the song. See if you can figure out the four verses to the song. There's a chorus in each one. After this, after this episode in Gaza, he loved a woman in the Valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you eleven hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man." Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, "'If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man.' So, Samson, so Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, "'The Philistines are upon you, Samson.' And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, "'Until now you have mocked me and told me lies.' Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and saw the and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, "Come up again, for he has told me all his heart." Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles and he ground at the mill in the prison. What an end. Attempting to manage sin rather than killing it will always lead to disaster. Uh, Samson in verses 4 through 6 is thinking that he's in charge of his life. But his passions deceive him. Do you see what it says there in verse 4? Uh, he, he loved a woman. He's, he's in love. He's in love. Now, it's not true love like the princess bride talks about, right? It's not true love. It's just, it's just desire, right? Samson is a man who lives for his passions, And the Philistines see an opportunity here, and they bribe the woman. And so the woman asks the question, right? The question, which has bothered everybody, is what's the secret to his strength? Which is why, as we talked about last week, I don't think Samson was a particularly amazing physical specimen. Here he does these amazing feats, like carrying the gates of the city of Gaza 40 miles up 3,000 feet, and everybody's like... I wonder what the secret is. If he were a massive man, people go, I understand this. But they don't know. What is it that is in this guy? What is the secret to his strength? And the woman asks here in uh, verse, uh, let's see, uh, verse four, verse, no, verse six sorry, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Notice that she asks it almost casually and theoretically. You know, Samson, just between the two of us, please tell me the secret of your strength. You know, be just a secret between us. There's a secret to Samson's strength, no no one denies that. The woman asks it like a lover would want to know a secret just to share between the two of them. And Samson compromises bit by bit, ever spiraling into disaster without really recognizing what's happening. Samson says to her, "Well, it's seven fresh bowstrings. That'll do the trick." And she has men in the inner chamber and she cries with the f- this is the first chorus. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. She uses his name. He should know her game now, but he willfully continues. Love is blind, they say, and indeed it will be literally so in this case, won't it? Note the emphasis here, the secret of his strength, verse 9, was not known. The secret remains unknown. So now in verses 10 through 12, Delilah moves away from this kind of innocent, just the secret between the two of us as lovers kind of way. She now resorts to emotional blackmail. You've mocked me. You've told me lies. In other words, Samson, you're a flawed sinner. And that Samson is a flawed sinner, there is no doubt, is there? Even in Samson's own mind, he knows that he is a flawed sinner. And Delilah is playing on Samson's conscience here in more ways than one. A man who knows he is in gross sin and is hiding it is a man who has no clarity of mind to act wisely. And when I say man, I mean anybody, right? It's any person. Any person who is in gross sin... And is hiding it is a person who has no clarity of mind to act wisely. Have you ever seen someone who's in gross sin and you go, how could they be so stupid? Well, that's what happens when you are in rebellion against God. Sin makes you stupid. Delilah brings in his mockery and lies as though it's against her and her alone. Maybe she knows that Samson will feel the weight of this charge against her even more deeply than the average guy because all along he's been making a mockery of and lying to God. The result is uh, verse 12, same song, second verse. Samson lies to Delilah once again, this time about ropes. And apparently Delilah has the same guys hiding in the same place and says the same thing. Using Samson's name once again, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And Samson escapes again. In verses 13 and 14, Delilah now intensifies her complaint. It's the same complaint, you mock me and lie to me, but there's a bite to it now. No longer is this playful Delilah, this is demanding Delilah. Do you see it there in verse 13? She commands him, it's a command form Tell me how you might be bound. And Samson now gets closer to the truth. He now lies, but he tells Delilah that the secret has to do with his hair. You see how he's getting closer and closer to the edge of disaster. He doesn't even know it. Do you see how sin works? How it gets closer and closer and closer to the soul? And it says, while he slept... His hair is weaved into this uh, web and put in, a pin put in, while he slept, verse 14. Perhaps it involves the soothing enchantments of Delilah and a large quantity of Philistine beer as we've talked about in previous weeks. This while he slept foreshadows a phrase that's going to appear more than once in this sad story. But again, she uses his name, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. The result is same song, third verse, Samson escapes again and perhaps he thinks now in his foolishness that he alone in all the universe can escape the impact of sin in one's life. That's how it is with people. They think that as they go into sin, they think, hey, I didn't get, we we, we sometimes get the idea, I sin, lightning bolt from the sky. So we sin, lightning bolt from the sky does not come down and we think, aha! I alone in the universe have escaped the effects of Galatians 6:7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Uh, that, that does impact 99.999% of the world, but it doesn't impact me. And that's how Samson is thinking here, isn't it? We can look on with wonderment at Samson's foolishness. He surely knows the game that Delilah is playing by now. Why, oh why, does he continue with her? Well, sin has a remarkable quality when we hide it, when we manage it, when we love it. It makes each one of us stupid. No one is immune from the stupidity that comes from sin. I want you to think for just a moment here about Proverbs chapter 5, where Solomon is writing to his children. He says, "'My son, be attentive to my wisdom, "'incline your ear to my understanding, "'that you may keep discretion, "'and your lips may guard knowledge, "'for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, "'and her speech is smoother than oil. "'But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, "'sharp as a two-edged sword. "'Her feet go down to death.' Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. And who was it who wrote that? Samson. Not Samson, sorry. Solomon. Solomon who did the exact same things as Samson. The author of sacred scripture is not immune from this foolishness. How dare we think that we would be? Delilah, verses 15 through 17, now employs bargaining, sympathy, nagging, and woundedness with predictable results. Notice Delilah's argument to Samson, "'How can you say that you love me?' Ignoring for the moment that she definitely does not love him, such is the way of dysfunctional love. You've mocked me three times. The tables are turned here, aren't they? The selfishness of Samson that we have seen all along is now outdone by the even greater selfishness of Delilah. You have not told me where your great strength lies.'" You've not told me as a way of saying, you're not being intimate with me. You're not sharing your world with me. But also, when she says, you're not telling me where your great strength lies, she's also complimenting him, isn't she? Is there a man around that doesn't want to be told that they're great? Or that they have great strength? You are a great man. <laughs> Delilah is playing both of those against him. And notice in verse 16, Delilah does not give up. She pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him and his soul was vexed to death. Uh, Not giving up cannot be underestimated as a means to success. Not giving up cannot be underestimated as a means to success. And here I'm going to have a little bit of a bunny trail, okay? So if you're not interested in the bunny trail, go to sleep, and I'll tell you when to wake up, okay? But I just want to talk about this idea of not giving up. I receive the email daily notifications of the New York Times. Uh, This week, on one morning, I got the email from the New York Times, and the beginning of the email said, and they always start this, good morning. But the second line was, America's longest war is over. What people tend to forget is war is never over until the losing side says it is over. This is a lesson that goes back to the Second Punic War, uh, where Rome had been utterly defeated by Carthage in the aftermath of the Battle of Cannae, but Rome did not surrender like all previous armies had done, and because they refused to surrender, the war was not over. And that's why we live in Western civilization rather than a Carthaginian style of civilization even today here. That changed everything. They did not give up. The Islamic militants have not surrendered. The war that we are in right now is not over no matter how optimistic the New York York Times is on the subject. Uh, Two World War II icons said some things that are important about this principle of not giving up. Winston Churchill, this is the lesson. Never give in, never give in, never, 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 never in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense, never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Douglas MacArthur said, I know war as few other men now living know it, and nothing to me is more revolting. I have long advocated its complete abolition as its very destructiveness on both friend and foe has rendered it useless as a means of settling international disputes. But once war is forced upon us, there is no other alternative than to apply every available means to bring it to a swift end. War's very object is victory, not prolonged indecision. In war, there is no substitute for victory. There are some who, for varying reasons, would appease Red China. They are blind to history's clear lesson, for history teaches with unmistakable emphasis that appeasement but begets new and bloodier war. It points to no single instance where this end has justified that means, where appeasement has led to more than a sham peace, like blackmail. It lays the basis for a new and successively greater demands until, as in blackmail, Violence becomes the only other alternative. MacArthur concludes, Why my soldiers asked of me why surrender military advantages to an enemy in the field, I could not answer, unquote. Now, you can wake up. I'm back to Samson. I want to talk about this principle of not giving up. Delilah didn't give up in her pursuit of evil ends. The Taliban have not given up in their pursuit of evil ends. Ask this question of yourself. Am I as tenacious about evangelism? Am I as tenacious about holiness? Am I as tenacious about loving one another? About serving the Lord with my gifts? About seeking to be a worshiper, maturing in Christ? as Delilah was about getting Samson's secret, as the Taliban are about their ideology, as progressives are in this country about insisting on their agenda. You see, conservative politics or liberal politics will not save us. What believers in Jesus must do is never give up on the passion to know Christ, on being worshipers of our one and only King, Jesus. Never give up. Samson, verse 17, surrenders. He told her all his heart. And he is a lapdog for the Philistine woman, as we will see literally shortly. He says here, Verse 17, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. A Nazarite from my mother's womb. Oh, really, Samson? He has failed multiple times by touching dead things, by drinking strong drink, and now he tells about his hair. You see how he's trying to live self-protectively, managing his sin. And in verses 18 to 21, the end game is, play, is played. Delilah now knows he's given her the real answer, and she tells her Philistine masters. And the Philistine lords know it's the truth too, so they actually bring the money that they're bribing Delilah with them to this party. Delilah puts Samson in a good mood and has him sleep on her lap, her lap dog, Likely she uses good old Philistine beer to have him pass out or at least get mind-numbingly sleepy. In this way, she can call a man out of the shadows who, without waking Samson, shaves off all his hair. That's why I think there's something going on here that, where Samson is drugged because if you took the instruments of sharpness in about 1100 B.C., I would wake up if somebody was cutting off my hair. He doesn't awaken. He's that deadened. And now the torment begins from Delilah. Now Samson knows what this woman really thinks of her, of him. You know, women can hide very skillfully what they truly think of men. Samson, of course, is blind and Men are often stupid enough to craft an imagined affection where there is none. That can happen whether the woman is purposeful or not about this. Samson's strength leaves him. And so one last time, a fourth time, we hear this chorus, the Philistines are upon you. And she uses his name, Samson. Despite telling Delilah the truth about his strength leaving if his hair is cut, Samson wakes up thinking he's going to win out just as before. One of the most painful sentences in all of Scripture now appears. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Lord with you is the single most powerful influence in the universe. The Lord left you as the single most weakening influence, and it is not because Samson broke the rules here, because Samson for a long time had been breaking the rules. There's no magic in the rules; it's because God decided it was time. And you can traipse along, managing your sin all your life long, thinking, "I'm escaping. I'm escaping. I alone in all the universe escape the consequences." But the Lord will decide when it is time. And it was time for Samson to be found out. And in one of the great ironies of the Bible, the man who lived his whole life by taking for himself whatever he saw, whatever looked good in his own eyes, remember all the way through this text, Samson saw a woman, Samson said, she looks good in my eyes, all those kinds of things all through this. One of the greatest ironies of the Bible is the guy who lived by his passions, by what he could see, now gets those eyes gouged out by the Philistines. And he grinds at the mill like a common animal. This is not a description of his strength. It is a description of his collapse. He's nothing but a farm animal to the Philistines. Aren't you glad the story doesn't end here? The grace of God to a ruined sinner. Verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to rejoice and they said, our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand and when the people saw him they praised their God for they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, "'Call Samson, that he may entertain us.' So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, "'Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, "'that I may lean against them.' Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Verse 22 has a word of hope, doesn't it? Samson's hair begins to grow. This is a metaphor that God is not done with Samson. There's hope even when completely defeated. I love what Tim Keller says about this. Samson's hair growing back is not meant to make us think, ah, now he has his hair. He'll be strong again because his strength relies on his hair. No, that's not it. But rather, ah, the Philistines think his strength is gone because his vow has been broken, but they don't understand that God's work and power are not constrained by or contingent upon his servant's obedience. God's up to something gracious here. So, in verses 23 to 27, we have a party at the Philistine temple. One of the things that happens in the Middle East is that the temples to your gods are also the museums of your victories. This is true of Israel, too. They had Goliath's sword in the holy place, you know. They have a museum piece, and their museum piece is this living guy, Samson. They have a celebration at their temple. Trot him out. They They trot him out. as a a testimony to their god Dagon's victory. And it noticed that they bring the Philistine beer too. verse 25, when their hearts were merry. Call Samson that he may entertain us. Samson's entertainment probably didn't have anything to do with Samson doing some song and dance. He probably just stood there while they made fun of him. Right? That's what entertaining was, just mocking him going, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, right? That's what they're doing, mocking him. That's entertainment to them. Notice here the prayer in verse 28 of a repentant sinner. He knows who God is. He uses terms for God as a covenant God, as the Lord, as an Almighty One. And he says, O Lord God, please... No longer is he this self-sufficient guy who lives by his passions. Now he knows who he is in light of a holy God. He's nothing. Please, remember me. Two thousand years later, there will be another man who will say those words, who is hanging on a cross next to our Lord Jesus. Remember me. And strengthen me. He acknowledges that vengeance is the Lord's. O God, you do this, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes." You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, Samson is called as one of the great heroes of the faith. What more shall I say, the author says, for time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And if you look at those things that those heroes did, you go through and you tick them off and you go, "No, no, no, no." of Samson. Who through faith conquered kingdoms? Samson do that? No. Enforce justice. No. Obtain promises. No. Stop the mouths of lions. No. Quench the power of fire. No. Escape the edge of the sword. No. But here's one, were made strong out of weakness. That's Samson, this man who was known as, whoa, the strong man is now utterly weak and by the grace of God is made strong out of his weakness. What grace. And so Samson dies in verse 30 really is a suicide bomber. The Philistine papers the next day said Israelite terrorist kills 3,000 at the temple in Gaza, right? I mean, a terrorist is defined by who outside side you're on. Remember, Samson never led an army. He dies alone. This was his prayer, and God in his grace answers it, though it still leaves us with a bad taste in our mouths, does it not? In the process, more... Philistines die in this event than in all his other exploits combined. And in verse 31, a broken family does a very hard thing. They go down to the capital city of the Philistines. They lift up hundreds of pounds of limestone from this broken temple and they take Samson's shattered body and they take it home and they bury him in His daddy's tomb. What do we make of this? Well, we find grace in the loss of what we have held dear in order to gain the One who is truly worthy. Have you ever noticed that in your life? If you were to poll the people who are believers here in this room, what were your moments of greatest spiritual growth? It wouldn't be Well, I was seeing success upon success in my life and now I knew God. No, the way it happens is my life was a disaster. I came to a place of utter brokenness and that's where God broke through and got his attention on my life. John Flavel, the Puritan minister, said this way, Outward gains are ordinarily attended with inward losses. That is, you see outward success, You start being deprived a little bit in your soul. You you lose your affection for God. While conversely, inward gains, growth in humility, self-control, and wisdom are ordinarily attached to outward losses that we experience, whether it's finances, careers, relationships, failing, what have you. We find grace in the loss of what we have held dear in order to gain the one who is truly worthy. Second thing we should come away with is selfishness disguises itself as love, doesn't it? Samson lived all his life for himself and it disguised itself as what he thought was love and it wasn't. Be careful of that in your life because until you know the love of God, you will never know true love. Now, I don't mean to say that people who are not believers in Jesus cannot experience some kind of legitimate kinds of love for one another, what I am saying is that until you know genuinely the love of God, you will never know what true love is. So come to know Jesus. Becoming weak in order to become strong, that's the story of Samson and the grace in his life. And it is imitated by our Lord Jesus, is it not? Who left heaven's glory, became weak like all of us, That he would become the strong captain of our souls and be an exalted king. I said at the beginning what I was going to tell you. The fool's gold of usefulness tricks us into managing our sin. Only grace can save us. Samson bought into the fool's gold of usefulness. Never think that being used by God means approval by God. Managing sin instead of killing it will lead to disaster. But here's the big takeaway. The grace of God is always available to ruined sinners. Fly to the cross. Lord Jesus, thank You that You lived a perfect life. Because all we are here are broken, ruined sinners. Think of the hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We worship you, Lord Christ. And we confess our management of our sin. We call upon you in repentance. Forgive us. Awaken us to the realities of these truths before it's too late, before disaster falls upon us. There's someone here who's playing with sin. Awaken them, God. to kill it, and to run, fly to the cross of Jesus. In His name we pray, amen.